Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, with author, pastor and Bible teacher, Mike Beaumont, who's talking to David Tavner. Last time we looked at the first letter to Timothy from Paul. This time we're going to look at the second letter from Paul to Timothy. But before that, a letter from Paul to Titus. These two we're putting together, Mike, why? Yeah, we're putting them together because Titus was written at the same time as 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy was written that bit later. So Acts ends uh, with Paul imprisoned in Rome. That's around 60 to 62. But we can work out from his letters that He seems to have been released after a couple of years under house arrest and he undertook a fourth missionary journey that is not detailed in Acts because of where it ends, but we can make a fair stab at reconstructing it from places that he mentions in his letters. So it seemed to be Rome, he did get to Spain, Crete, Miletus, Colossae, Ephesus, Philippi, Nicopolis, and then Rome, where this time he is re-arrested and this time finally martyred. Now, it was during that journey uh, between the end of Acts 28 and his final death and martyrdom in Rome that he left Timothy in Ephesus, as we saw last time, and he left Titus in Crete. So Titus is on the island of Crete, different situation presumably to Ephesus, different people. What, What do we know about Titus? Titus was, it seems, uh, another young man that Paul had mentored. He was probably, I think, almost certainly converted under Paul's ministry because he describes him in chapter 1, verse 4, as my true son in the faith that we share. Similar terms to what he'd used there for Timothy. So it it looks like this was another young man who'd come to faith under Paul's ministry. He also describes him as my partner who works with me in 2 Corinthians 8, 23. Now, we know that he'd accompanied Paul and Barnabas on their visit to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles that Paul talks about in Galatians 2. He'd been sent by Paul to Corinth to deal with difficulties in the church there and had brought back good news to Paul about that because we read about that in 2 Corinthians 7. He'd organized the offering from Corinth for Jerusalem, because we read about that in 2 Corinthians 8. So he's been pretty active with Paul, a bit like Timothy has accompanied him on Paul's journeys. He's been mentored and trained and has been increasingly given increasing responsibilities. And now Paul has left him here on this, what we might call the fourth missionary journey. He's left him in Crete to complete the work there. And I think the fact that Paul has left him in Crete is a measure of Paul's growing confidence in this young man. Why does Paul need to write a letter to Titus? Well, he he tells us in chapter 1, verse 5, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. That's interesting, in every town. So there's more than one church grouping there on the island. So he's left him to appoint elders. We know that Paul liked to appoint elders in every place he planted churches. He hasn't had time to do that 
So Titus has been sent to do it, but also he says to straighten out. That's an interesting thing. There were some things that weren't quite in line and quite in place yet. And because Paul had moved on, he'd perhaps not had time to make clear what all of those were. And so he writes this fairly short letter to him to outline some of the things that he wants Titus to be aware of and to give himself attention to. And if part of that then is appointing elders, pointing people into leadership roles, it's clearly essential that the right people are selected. So how how does Paul help Titus with that? Yeah, absolutely. In a very, very similar way to what he did in 1 Timothy that we looked at in a previous episode, Uh, you know, the fact again that these were written at the same time, it may be that there was a bit of the first century equivalent of stick and paste uh, going on here. But he outlines in verses six to nine of Titus some of the qualifications for elders. Again, it's interesting, just as we saw in 1 Timothy, the focus is very much on character. An elder has to be blameless, the husband of but one wife. Blameless doesn't mean perfect. I think it means no obvious accusations can be made against him the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and who are not open to the charge of being wild or disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what's good, who's self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. And he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it's been taught so he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So at last we get to something of what he's going to do. But notice all those before about what he's got to be. And here, as we saw in 1 Timothy, is the importance of leaders being people of good character. That's quite a long list. I mean, does such a person exist? I think what it shows is, if you like, the the all-embracing expectation of, of what a life in Jesus looks like. That, you know, if someone's going to be a leader of people who are followers of Jesus, the first thing he's got to be is a follower of Jesus himself or herself. And so some of these are just pretty fundamental things. You know, it's very easy when we read this to look at it like a tick box, isn't it, and check which ones they've got and not. But I I think what Paul is doing here is he's, he's saying, look, there's some fundamental basic character issues that have to be in place because if they aren't, how can you with any integrity lead other people or, you know, you you can't preach what you're not practicing. So the most fundamental qualification uh, for elders is that they really are looking to practice their faith themselves in their own life, in their own family, in their own lifestyle. Oh, and by the way, it would be really good if they can teach well and put people straight if they're getting their doctrine wrong. As I was listening to you reading out the qualifications for, for leadership, there seemed to be a gender issue. He seemed to be talking about men. Yes, and I I don't think we can get away from that, whatever one chooses to do or not today. I think it does seem pretty clear that elders in the New Testament church 
were men. Now, one might want to go on and say that was for cultural reasons and everything else, but I think one just has to be honest and say, yes, what different Christians and churches choose to do with that today is up to them before God in their reading of Scripture and their leading by the Holy Spirit. He's on the island of Crete. How easy is it going to be to find these sort of people amongst the Cretans? Well, he he seems not very easy because there's this really funny passage in what follows straight on from this where Paul says to him, there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers. Well, that's a bad description, isn't it? He says they must be silenced because they're ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach and that for the sake of dishonest gain even one of their own prophets, uh, one of the sayings, one of the writers from Crete has said, how about this? Cretans are always liars, evil brutes and lazy gluttons. Ouch. So, ouch, indeed. So this is, if you like, the cultural context out of which Titus has to draw and train and mentor people out of that sort of background. Talkers, deceivers, liars, evil brutes, gluttons, as even some of your own people are saying. So it, it was certainly going to be a challenge from the look of it, wasn't it? He certainly got a difficult job, bearing in mind that long list that uh, Paul came up with before. But from that list, and indeed from, I think, Paul's similar advice to Timothy, it sounds like the way someone is at home counts for a lot. It does, doesn't it? And that came out in both the passages, didn't it? When we looked at 1 Timothy and, and this here, the importance of, um, if you can't run your family, how can you run the family of God? And I think that's still a good principle. If you can't organise your family, if you can't keep your own family out of needless debt, not talking about having a mortgage that you've carefully planned for and budgeted for, but you know, if, if, if you can't keep your own kids in order, if you can't rule your own family, how can you hope to lead God's family? Because at heart, you know, church is different. It's different from every other organization on earth. It is not an organization. In fact, it's the family of God. Family is one of the big pictures that comes out again and again in Old Testament and New Testament about the people of God. And what does family need? It needs fathers and it needs mothers. And so I think this call here to look at what are people's family life like? Because what you see going on in their family life is what they will replicate in the church. And because we want family, we need good mums and dads to lead it. I suppose it's fair to say that Paul isn't setting the bar at an impossible height. He's not setting at an impossible height, but I mean, it is a challenge. And I think he means it to be a challenge. I think what he's saying is you don't let Tom, Dick or Harry into leadership in the church at any sort of level, whether that's the lead pastor or vicar or whether it's the home group leader or the youth group leader, you know... <laughs> We are looking for certain qualities. We're not looking for perfection. But we're looking for honest followers of Jesus who know at times they will get things wrong, but, you know, who have got some of the fundamentals in place 
and are honestly seeking to be followers of Jesus. Because how can I call you to be a follower of Jesus unless I myself am following him? So if you were in Titus's shoes, do you think you would find Paul's advice very helpful? Well, I'm sure I would, if, if only not to be able to go to the church and say, I've had a letter from the apostle and, and, and this is what he's told us to do. So I suppose it's, it's good from that point of view. But I think it's incredibly helpful. Remember, he's still pretty young. He's still pretty inexperienced. So he, he's getting advice. And of course, not just on church leadership. He'll go on to tell Titus about how to handle false teachers. Uh, in chapter two, he'll talk about the importance of teaching sound doctrine to different parts of the church. He'll remind Titus of the one of the most important things I think we could learn, and, and that is about the grace of God. There's this lovely passage in chapter two and verse 11, where it says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodly and worldly passions. Titus, you know, for your own life, for these you've got responsibility for. Yeah, there are things to live up to, but the way we live up to these things is not by trying to follow rules. That's doomed to failure. It's rather by getting hold of the grace of God. The more we get hold of God's grace and kindness and understand who he is and what he's done, the more we will want to live like this. So the advice to Timothy in Ephesus and the advice to Titus on the island of Crete had some similarities. But you said earlier that the second letter to Timothy takes us on in time. It's, it's, it's written later to Timothy. And what's happening in, in Paul's life by then? Yes, I said earlier that when Paul was released from his house arrest at the end of Acts 28, he did what we've summed up as a, as a fourth missionary journey, which we can piece together from his letters. But he eventually ends up back in Rome. We don't know how or why or what happened, but we do know that he ended up back in Rome. And this time he's not under house arrest this time he's actually in jail and in chains, and that comes out clearly in 2 Timothy. And it's written at a time when he knows the end is really close. So this is now around 67, 68 AD when Paul died. We're not sure exactly when, but it's round about that time. And towards the end of 2 Timothy, where he's giving him his final charge, he says to Timothy, but you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all your duties of your ministry, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time has come for my departure. Now, that word, he's not thinking there, oh, I'm about to be released. The word for departure there. In the Greek, it was the word that was used of a ship slipping its moorings. And he's clearly using that as a picture of it's time to cast off from this life and to slip out to sea into the future. And then he says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. 
Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. So Paul clearly now is expecting trial and death, uh, martyrdom under Nero, to be very, very close indeed. So these are really some of his last words that he's going to share with his spiritual son, Timothy, still there in Ephesus, sharing them to Timothy, but obviously also with the church as well. As There's a little giveaway to that right at the end. The very final verse of 2 Timothy says, grace be with you. But in the Greek, the you there is plural. So he was clearly writing to Timothy, but in an expectation, the whole church would have heard these final words from him. And bear in mind what we've learned about what drove Paul, what motivated him, the energy that he had. Here he is towards the end. He, he, he sees the, the end is coming as far as he's concerned, but he's making the most even of these last moments. Oh, Absolutely. And really, the whole letter is is an encouragement to Timothy to stay loyal to Jesus and to join Paul in his suffering for the gospel. And the gospel and his passion to preach about Jesus really sort of beats loud uh, through this letter. For example, in chapter 1, verse 8, he says... uh, Don't be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to live a holy life. There's that don't give in. You know, this is what we are called to and goes on to say, this is why I'm suffering as I am, because he's preached the gospel in verse 12. And then he says, yet I'm not ashamed because I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. So there's this profound sense of conviction. This gospel is still throbbing there within him, this good news of Jesus, and and he might be now in the deepest dungeon in Rome, and he might now be in chains, but He's still going there and he's still full of passion about the gospel and he's still eager to say to Timothy, don't give in, keep on with this work. I mean, this guy just buzzed with this good news of Jesus, didn't he? He doesn't stop. And Timothy, you reminded us before, you know, perhaps described as somewhat timid. So Paul still believes he he, he can come through that. He He can be bold. Yeah, and there are little encouragements to keep on to that end. So after this section, he goes on, to say what you've heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Jesus Christ. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. So he's got a real sense that he has passed something on to Timothy and he's confident that this young guy is is going to pass it on himself. In fact, in chapter two, he opens with these words, you then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, still needing to call him there to be strong. And the things you heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will be qualified 
to teach others. The, the word men there is the general word for mankind, people. So there's Paul thinking four generationally. Me, you, Timothy, reliable people who can teach others. I love that. Paul is not just thinking next generation. He's thinking four generations ahead. Now, there's a challenge to any leaders listening to this. What are you doing to start equipping and thinking for four generations ahead? And, and then encourages him to, to not get caught up in the stuff of life, but to stay focused. He says, no one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his serving officer. Similarly, if someone competes as an athlete, he doesn't receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. And then an illustration from farming. It, they're all about keep going. And then this remember Jesus raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I'm suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word isn't chained. And it's not chained there in Rome. And his implication is, and Timothy is not chained in and through you as well. My time might be over. It might be time for me to slip the moorings any time now. But I'm confident in you and I'm commissioning you and I'm telling you to keep hold of this faithful God and all he has done for us in Jesus and keep pressing on. And you'll get there. I mean, I really hear him saying, come on, boy. You can do it. You'll get there. Another great bit says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. Come on, keep on preaching, keep on going, keep on sharing this. You can do it. Tremendous encouragement here in this letter to him. Very, very powerful, very strong. But again, I'm thinking, you know, Paul, just in the quotation there, in chains like a criminal, his crime has simply been to profess Christ. Yeah. And so his message to Timothy, who's yet to live his life and yet to be the leader of this church and so on, what on earth is Timothy going to be thinking? Fair enough. I look to Paul, but he's dying just for following Jesus. Yeah, you see, I think, I think this is where the close relationship and the mentoring comes in. This is not um, the CEO of the organization sending you an email asking you to do something. This is a man he's worked with, lived with, laughed with, cried with, labored with, probably been stoned with, been on missions with. He's walked the walk as well as talked the talk. And I, I think because the two of them have become so close in their relationship, Timothy would have received this not as a, Oh, my goodness, I can see where this is going. Time to move on, I think. But rather as a call to, to continue to walk in the way that his spiritual father, Paul, had walked. He'd seen God, you know, come to his aid again and again, and he knew God would again, even if that meant he would come to his aid through ultimately his execution. Paul knew whom he had believed, and he was convinced that he was able to keep what he committed to him until that day, he said. And I think Timothy was caught up in that. He was caught up, well, first and foremost with Jesus, but he was caught up with, with love and fellowship with this apostle that he'd walked alongside. And he'd seen it worked. 
Again, a missive from the CEO might be some guy, a woman you've never met before in your life, and they just tell you to do something. These are people who had walked together. He'd seen it worked. And why would it stop working now? And why would he now want to start doing anything different from what he'd been trained to do? And I guess for Timothy, this isn't a job. This isn't a career. This is a calling. So to what extent is Paul's word undergirding Timothy's belief in his calling? I think very much so. In fact, Paul takes him back to that calling. And, you know, there are some times in life when we have to go back to our calling and say, what did God say to me? It's tough now. Looks like it's tough ahead. But what did God say? And there's this lovely section at the end of chapter three going into four where he says, as for you, continue in what you've learned and become convinced of because you know those from whom you've learned it and how from infancy you've known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation in Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say all scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And that, of course, included Timothy himself. This was not just teaching for others. So he, he reminds him of, of what was deeply rooted in him. He reminds him of the need to stir up the prophetic words that he received when hands were laid on him. So he's really taking him back to where it all began and saying, come on, look back. Remember what God said. Remember what God said prophetically at your ordination, we might say. Remember what God has consistently said again and again in Scripture. Keep hold of that. You know, David, I have had to look back many times in my life when I've faced challenges either at a personal level or as a pastor or as a, a teacher when things have looked like they've wanted to go pear-shaped or have gone pear-shaped. And I've had to go back and pray and say, but God, what did you say? And I found again and again, it's going back to what I know God said at that moment and saying, God, you said this. And if you said it, then you were going to bring me through. And I've seen it happen again and again and again. And, and I can't not just take this opportunity to say to any listeners who are just going through a challenging time at the moment, what did God say? What did God say to you when you stepped out to do this, when you took up this work, when you moved to this new place, when you set up this new church, when you took up this responsibility? What did God say? Go back to that. Keep hold of it. And do you know what? Take what God said and take it back to him in prayer and say, here, God, this is how I often talk to him. Here, God, you said this. You promised this. This is what you said to me. It's not working out like that. So, Lord, I'm coming to you for you to make this happen. And again and again and again, I've seen God do that. And I think that's what Paul is doing here with Timothy in these closing, what, days, weeks of his life, to take Timothy back to what God said, both prophetically and in the scriptures, so that his whole life and ministry would be based on both of those, because, of course, that's exactly what Paul had based his life on. The scriptures, as they had them, the Old Testament, 
where he saw Jesus again and again and what God had set him on the road to Damascus, where he had called him not just to be an apostle to the Gentiles, but had also told him, by the way, uh, this is going to cost you some suffering. And so it's like when the suffering came, he knew it wasn't outside of God's purpose. I'm sure he didn't like it, but he knew it was okay because God had spoken. So here is Paul saying, Timothy, do the same. Keep going back to what God said in the scriptures and to what God said prophetically. And if you do that, Timothy, you won't go far wrong. So as you think about these letters to the individuals, to Timothy and to Titus from Paul, and the letters to the churches in Rome, Corinth, Colossae, Thessalonica, Galatia, they take up, as you said some time ago, quite a chunk of the New Testament. If they weren't there, if they weren't in the Bible, what would we be missing? I think we'd be missing a couple of things. First, we'd be missing a pastor's heart. We'd be missing an insight into what it really means to care for the flock of God, to care enough to love them, encourage them, to care enough to challenge them when they got things wrong. And I think for any of us who are involved in any kind of leadership at at any level of church life, or frankly, even in the secular sphere, to be someone who cares is the most fundamental thing People don't care what you know till they know that you care. And so I think we'd be missing this great big window into not just an ivory tower academic theologian, but a pastor who cares, who cares enough to encourage and challenge and even rebuke, you know, because his rebukes come out of his care and his love for the churches. We'd miss out an awful lot of practical application of what it means to follow Jesus. So I'm just really glad these letters are there. And uh, as a pastor of many years standing, I'm really not sure how I would have built church if, if these letters had not been there to guide me both in my personal life and my leadership life. So St. Paul, thank you for going through all you went through to make these letters available to us today. Mike Bowman has been talking to David Tavernack. Listen to more episodes anytime. Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation. This is a United Christian Broadcasters production. For more about UCB, check out the website at ucb.co.uk.